stood still. Really? That is, that doesn't really cohere with basic astronomy, does it? Or how is it that a man was swallowed by a fish, lived in it for three days, then was spat back out? Like, is this, is this stuff for real? Or, or let's take Jesus. It's Christmas time. So let's take Jesus, for example. Okay. Jesus allegedly walked on water, supposedly healed people of uncurable disease, and apparently rose from the dead and is still alive today. From 2,000 years ago. Wow. Okay. You guys believe this stuff. Now, let's stop here for a moment. No matter who you believe Jesus is, historically speaking, he was a real figure. Even those who lived in ancient Palestine back then and didn't believe Jesus was the Lord, was the Christ, still recorded him as a real person who walked this earth. For example, there was a guy, a bloke named Josephus, right? And, and Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived during the time of Christ. And this guy was not a disciple. You catch that? Not, not a follower of Jesus, but he did report on significant events of his own day, kind of like a journalist would from the Sydney Morning Herald, right? And this is what he says about Jesus. He says, now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of, as he says, principal men among us, remember he's writing as a guy living in this day, he, principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again in the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named, from him, are not extinct to this day. Wow. Do you understand? This wasn't written by a biblical author. This wasn't written by a Christian. He's observing like someone would with the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever and saying, these things really happened. I'm just, I'm just noting those things for you as a historian would. He's just reporting on this religious figure. And he wasn't alone. He wasn't the only guy that talked about this historic person, Jesus. There was a guy named Lucian. Lucian, this guy was such a cheeky ratbag. He, he, he was. He couldn't stand Christians. Um, he was from an area called Samosata, and, and he was very, um, he loved satire, which I 
true confession, I actually like satire. But he loved satire, and he, he loved to pick on. His whooping boy was basically this idea of a crucified Messiah and how people follow a dead Messiah and how stupid that is. But look what he says about Jesus here. He says, the man who was crucified in Palestine, talking about Jesus, right? The man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. And then look how he ridicules Christians of his day. He says, furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they were all brothers one of another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Now, would you agree that's not really a fan of Jesus? That's not really a fan of the church? But note, friend, he doesn't deny the historical reliability of Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, and that was all a bunch of junk that people made up. He's admitting you see, even the staunch opponents of Christianity cannot deny that Jesus really existed. Amen. Now, the question becomes, who was he? Who was he? And typically, do you know where folks get hung up? This is where they get hung up, because you can't deny, those are only two quotes from history. Both guys who aren't Christians, didn't claim to be Christians, certainly not the second guy, certainly not Lucian. But where these guys and others throughout history following them, do you know where they get hung up? Typically, it's on the miracles. It's on the miracles. They'll say, how can we believe that this man walked on water, that he fed 5,000 people, that he rose physically from the dead. Those are fair questions. Would you agree? Fair enough. But all of which can be sorted by one simple truth. So rather than chase all those rabbit trails, oh, did he walk on water? Was it low tide, high tide? You know, maybe there was extra food that the disciples are hiding behind the hill and they... <laughs> You know, before we chase all those rabbit trails, all of those things can be sorted with one simple truth. One, and I, I, I'd go so far as to say there's a silver bullet. And here's the silver bullet. You ready for it? Drum roll. Silver bullet is the incarnation. Are you convinced? I ask my kids, I say, do you like it? Yes. And if they say, you know, or then they, or they, no. Or if they're not convinced, they go. <laughs> so when I say Jesus, the incarnation, maybe you're like this. Uh, okay, well, let me explain. If Jesus was just a good bloke, you know, a godly man who tried to help people, a religious figure, godly guy, but a religious figure, it's ridiculous it's ridiculous, it's absurd to believe half the stuff the Bible claims that he did. Of course he couldn't have turned water into wine, brought people back from the dead, caused blind eyes to see, walked on water, etc. He's just a man. 
Even if he's a godly man, he's just a man. Unless he's the God-man. You see, if the baby in the manger is in fact divine, if he's the father's agent in creation, would he not have the power over weather and all natural elements? If he is the author of life, is it so strange that he should rise from the dead? If he is in fact God in the flesh, would he not have the ability to heal diseases? That's why the incarnation is the key piece in the puzzle. Once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, as soon as a person can tick this box, all the others get sorted. Do you understand why the incarnation is so fundamental to understand who Jesus is and the miracles and rising from the dead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Because he is the God-man. The baby in the manger isn't just a cute and cuddly thing in his mother's arms that brings us a sentimental holiday. The, this baby is the God-man, the eternal word who took on flesh. And when you open up to the Gospel of John, as Ralph just read for us, that's the point John is making. That is the axe that he is grinding, as it were. John has something to teach us about Christmas. But he doesn't start with a nativity scene or a family tree or, or a genealogy. He takes us back further, way back before the creation of the world, actually. So as a church this morning, what I want us to do is to camp out on actually the first verse of John. The very first verse. There's, you can look up here on the screen, there's three clauses that John gives us. You see it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. So hopefully it'll make sense if I break it down this way. I want to talk about three points all coming off of this. In the beginning was the word, is the word's existence. Ah, oh, that's fine. You got it, Jacob. The word's existence, the word's fellowship, and the word's deity, or as you guys say, Deity. I don't see another E and I'm just sorry. Anyway, I'll stop. The word's deity. So that's where we're headed. Now, I realize, sorry, sorry music stand. <laughs> I realize that for many of us, we're kind of like, because you could say the words, and I put existence, I wanted to say um, eternality, but that's like who uses that word, right? And then fellowship, you're kind of, uh, and deity. That, this kind of seems a bit abstract, right? Like you're kind of looking at that, you're like, all right, cool. But look, friend, this is Christmas. This is why, you, you know, I understand that you can go into any shopping center and you'll hear 
Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Right? But, but all, that, all that is just... There's only reason that you even any of that exists, and, and all of that can obviously can be really distracting, and that's not going to be my point of the sermon, but all those things, the only reason we have Christ, Christmas, is this, this, this truth right here. So as abstract sometimes as that might seem, I, I just want to encourage you, God has given you a brain, and God has created you in his image, and there's so much to learn as we dive into this text today. So let's be tuned in and saying, okay, why, why Christmas? Why the incarnation? And as we look at this idea of the word's existence, the word's fellowship, the word's deity, let's be praying, even as we're going through, if you feel yourself, your mind sort of drifting, it's easy to be distracted during this time of year, say, Lord, help, help me. I, I want to know you own. I want to focus. Sound good? All right, so let's, let's pray. Let's pray that God would, would bless his word now. Father, as we give attention to your written word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us in a clear and deep way this truth of the word made flesh, that we may learn more of who he is and how we ought to trust and worship him. And it's in his name we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever slogged through a book, like a big novel, only to get to the end of it to find the punchline? Like you had to get to the entire book. Or maybe you've watched a TV series. Take the show Lost from some years back. And, and you watch the whole TV series only to find at the end they tell you, and they were all dead. It's like, really? Sorry if that spoiled it for you. You've been, Lost is like, if you're just now discovering Lost, you're, I don't know, talk to Ross, he'll bring you up on all the pop culture and all that stuff, okay? But Lost is like so a decade ago. But, and I'm hoping the star, next Star Wars trilogy is, has a better ending than that, right? But it's interesting, in the Bible, the Bible can actually do the same thing. You can read through a whole book, only you get to the very end of it, and then the author states, this is the reason I wrote all this, by the way. Like, for instance, the Gospel of John, he gives a biography of Jesus, and look what he says here. In John, he says, ready? These were written, so here's, here's his point, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the reason he wrote it. Okay, fair enough. But if the point is to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God, why not bring that up at the start, John? The first verse doesn't even mention Son. First few verses don't even mention Son. It's all of this word stuff. Why does he do that? Well, because it's a loaded phrase, right? Certain words would evocate, as it were, or, or cause someone to think of a certain idea. If a Jew heard son of God, a Jew would think that is a political Messiah that we've been waiting for. If a Greek would hear 
son of God. A Greek would go to some of their mythology and this idea of deity, of a God and a woman and, and giving birth to this super Hercules sort of figure. And so, so what John does is he sort of pulls back and then goes to this idea of the word. And after he unpacks the word's existence, the word's fellowship, and the word's deity, then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, it's Jesus. But that's why he does that. It's interesting, the word in the Old Testament, the word, God's word, is his creative power, right? The, 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 the Bible says, my word goes out from my mouth and does not return to me void, but accomplishes its purpose. It is God's creative power, as it were. It is God's, uh, really, it's his self-disclosure, his expression, as it were. Now, it's interesting here, that's why John starts saying, in the beginning, what is that, does that sound familiar? Like the very first book of the Bible, maybe? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. So now we want to talk about the word's existence. Look at your Bible. In the beginning was the Word. It's interesting, when, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, who does Matthew link Jesus to? Abraham, right? Like he goes, Jesus, the son of Abraham, son of David, son of Abraham, but he's going pretty far back to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And if you read Luke's account, Luke connects Jesus back to Adam. And there's reasons they do this, by the way. Jesus is the greater Adam. He's connecting it back to Adam. But what John does is actually go even further back. It's fascinating. He traces Jesus' origins to eternity past. My son... Josiah asked me the other day, he said, Dad, who made God? And how was God born? And you know what I said to him? That's blasphemy, Josiah. <laughs> you should know better than that. No, I didn't say that. I might be intense, but I'm not that bad. No, I said, you know, hey, buddy, nobody made God. God's actually never had a beginning. Now that's easy to say, but try wrapping your mind around that for a minute. Because we think of things that begin and terminate, right? Begin and end. We have a, there's a timestamp on everything in life. But not with the word. The word has always been. The word had no beginning of his own. Jesus existed before creation. Can you see the verb that John uses? It's right there in your Bible. 
was. In the beginning was. Basically, when all things began, the word was already in existence. He is eternal. Before the universe started, the second person of the Trinity was there. Later on in John's gospel in chapter 8, there's this tiff between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And you know what they say? Jesus, you're a Samaritan, which is not true, meaning you're a half Jew. And Jesus, you're filled with demons. That's how you do all of these miracles that you do. And so they're arguing back and forth and Jesus goes, listen guys, I'm telling you right now that if you believe my words, you won't taste death. It's this whole idea that John does between life, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son that ever believes in him, have eternal life. And Jesus, John is carrying on this theme. And, and Jesus says, you won't taste death. And, and the Pharisees, hear that. They're, they're in the temple, they're sitting around and they go, now we know, now we know that you're, you must be the leader of the demons because all the prophets died. They tasted death and you're saying, you have the audacity to say, you have the nerve, you have the gall to say that if someone believes in you, they won't taste death. Abraham tasted death, all the prophets tasted death. That's a part of life. And Jesus says, well, let me, let me explain. I'm not just any old bloke talking here. Before Abraham existed, I am. The guy's not even 50 years old. So the Jews in their minds, they even say, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you know Abraham? And he says, before Abraham existed in John 8, I am. Which is what God said to Moses of the burning bush. Do you remember that? I am that I am. And do you know what the Jews do? They go, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's good. That's cool. I, that's, hey, man, if, if that's what you want to, you know what? We're not going to judge. You just identify however you want to identify Jesus and we'll accept you for who you are. Is, is that what happens? I mean, that, that probably sounds like today's jargon. But the Jews know exactly what Jesus is saying by saying, I am, so they pick up stones to kill him. He's saying, I existed before Abraham. Remember? The word was, right? In the beginning was the word. So do you understand? Jesus existed prior to creation. Now, he wasn't just hanging out by himself, feeling a bit lonely or bored. He was with God the Father. Notice the next part of the verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Do you see that? That's the next part. That's the next point is the Word's fellowship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, side by side with God. From all eternity, there was a bond, there was a loving embrace of the Father and the Son, 
as they share everlasting communion together. Let me show you. Um, go, since you're already in John, just, just flip over to chapter 17 real quick. Look at John 17. Jesus is about to be crucified. In John 17... And Jesus uses this language to say that the hour has come. This crucifixion is, is right, it's on the brink of it. And so what does he do? He, he First he prays for himself, then he prays for the disciples, and then for his future church. But I want you to notice that in this prayer, Jesus looks beyond the agonies of the cross, beyond the sufferings of Calvary, and asks to be returned to the fellowship he experienced with the Father before the world began. Look at John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, notice, before the world existed. Before the world was. Do you see that unbroken fellowship that the Father has had with the Son? The Son is distinct from the Father, but he enjoys a perfect relationship with the Father. And he's the Father's agent in creation. You're like, what do you mean? The Father's agent in creation. What does that even mean? Right now, as I speak, multiple people are sitting on their decks here in Wyoming, or Narara, or Lizaro, or Narara Park, or wherever you're from. Multiple people are sitting on their decks, having, sipping a coffee, Overlooking creation, unless it's raining. Overlooking creation and saying, yeah, pretty nice day. Mmm, mmm, yeah. Sipping coffee. But they don't understand everything that is, everything their eyes can see, all that has existed and all will exist, owes its origin, its being to Jesus. He brought the universe into being simply by speaking words. Let there be, and it was. You see, Jesus was not created. He is the creator. Go, go back to John real quick. Notice the, the logic, what John does here in John 1. He says this, right? Because he's not, look what he says.
Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You understand the earth had a starting point. And then out of nothing came into being with Jesus as the creator of it. You know, about 20 years ago, it was thought that the universe contained about a hundred and, let's see, 20 years ago, it was like a hundred and, this is science, 125 billion galaxies. That's insane. That's crazy. But today they talk about billions of galaxies and each galaxy is said to contain a thousand trillion stars. That is insane. A thousand trillion stars in each galaxy. I sound like Trump. Trillion stars. Billions. Probably shouldn't bring his name up right now, but a trillion stars in each galaxy. And listen, Jesus spoke it all into being by his word. In all of its complexity, in all of its minuteness, the various particles and forces that make up matter all owes its origin and existence to the God-man. It's pretty clear now, isn't it? The next point, the word is divine. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who's he talking about? You know, after Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead. There's a guy named Thomas who doesn't believe him. He goes, yeah, I don't believe it. And unless I put my fingers where he was crucified, unless I put my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe it. So Jesus appears to him. And he goes, go ahead, Thomas. Right? A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my what? God. And what Jesus could have said is, eh, stop right there, buddy. Don't ever call me God. But he receives that worship. Hence the reason that John, the next thing John writes is that little in bit. Here's the reason I'm writing is so that you'll believe that Jesus is the son of God. Thomas wasn't saying you know what some people have tried to say? Well, you know what Thomas is doing there. He's shocked. That's an OMG moment for him. That's what he's saying. OMG, it's Jesus. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty unconvincing. No, no, no. That is a declaration because he is seeing the resurrected Messiah. And he says, my Lord and my God. Now, this word that is eternal, 
this word that has been in perfect union and fellowship with the Father, this word that is himself a part of the Godhead is God, verse 14. Verse 14. Look what it says. Many of us know it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That is incredible. Perfect communion with the Father. Breathing, as it were, heaven's air, yet comes down to a sin-stained world. Breathes this air. Why? Why would he do such a thing? To save sinners. Oftentimes, when people imagine Christmas, besides all the other you know, stuff we already talked about, even if they imagine the manger, it's often l- Jesus is left as this cuddly, cute little baby that you sort of go, oh, isn't that nice? It reminds me of my baby. I kind of want to, I wish I could rock with my baby again. But what we don't often think about is that those soft little hands that this infant in a cradle, as it were, were made by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb so that nails might be driven through them. Those little baby feet, little and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and a beautiful smile was formed so that someday men would force a crown of thorns onto it. That is the message of Christmas. And if it sounds barbaric and brutal, our sin was so wicked that it took the perfect life and death of God's eternal Son to take the punishment of all of our crimes. So when you reflect on Christmas, friend, let us think about this eternal word who had perfect fellowship with the Father, is himself God and was sent to save sinners who took on flesh. Remember what I said last week? Our faith needs to land somewhere. It needs to land in the Son, in the Word. It's interesting, the the, the word there is who the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, um, pitched his tent. Not like Jesus went camping. Tabernacled is probably the better term amongst us. How did God be present with his people in the Old Testament? Initially, it was through the tabernacle, right? 
And the priest comes in on Yom Kippur and sheds the blood. And that's how, you know, because if there's a holy God in the presence of his people, you have to have all this, this, and this, and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually that gets to the temple. But as we know, history, the temple gets demolished. Jews go off to Babylon. They come back. They try to build the temple. It's a lousy one. It never was the same, et cetera, et cetera. But what John is saying is God now comes Emmanuel and the Son of Jesus and dwells among us. Jesus' body is the temple. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it back up. So are, are, are you, is your faith landing there in the sun? I don't mean, yeah, I believe in God. When I was back in the States, I bumped into some old friends and they said, you know, I never stopped believing in God. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Uh, uh, is your faith actually landing, not in just some higher idea of a higher power of God, but in Jesus, who is the Son? Is your faith landed there? What a tragedy it would be to celebrate Christmas again and again and again, year after year, decade after decade, to sort of have that information just wash over you over and over and over again, only to come to the end of your life and never actually embrace it. How vain would that be to just keep coming every year to the Christmas holiday, Merry Christmas, but you never embrace the sun. John the apostle would look at you and say, don't leave this room until you place your faith in the Son. That's why I wrote these things, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again how you move in the hearts of your people when your word is preached. Thank you that you have spoken and you've spoken in your son. Thank you for the work, Lord Jesus, that you have done on our behalf, that you would come to this sin-stained world for your glory and the, the sake of your Father's glory, that you'd bring many sons to glory, many children to know you. We pray that you would do that now, or that Maybe there's someone here that is feeling like, no, I have not clothed with Jesus. I haven't closed. I have not become a Christian. I haven't been born again. Would you, would you work in their heart now miraculously to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.